Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing news of positive footprints and purposeful travels with you for the next hour from our studios in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. February marks Black History Month, and in celebration, we return to Missouri, a state that has made a unique contribution to America's history as told through the black experience. On today's show, we will share some of Missouri's African-American heritage sites and historic figures. First, Father Moses Ferry, founder of the Ozarks African-American Museum in Ashgrove, shares the history and artifacts of this important museum on Missouri's African-American Heritage Trail. Then good friend Angela Da Silva of Lindenwood University and the National Black Tourism Network joins us to talk about a few Missourians who rose from slavery to national prominence. Finally, it's off to Independence, Missouri, to explore some of the history and places where African-American contributions have not been forgotten. And as always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And uh, certainly we love connecting with you and chatting with you during the week, and we invite you to join any of our social networks from Facebook to Twitter, YouTube, and Stitcher, our mobile app that allows you to listen to us on the go from any mobile device. So join us for any of those things and also sign up for our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. Deep in the foothills of southwest Missouri, the Ozarks African-American Heritage Museum has been preserving the experience of African-Americans in the frontier since 2002, thanks to Father Moses Berry, whose grandmother, Caroline Boone, is the daughter of Nathan Boone, the youngest son of America's most famous frontiersman, Daniel Boone. Father Berry takes us on an extraordinary tour of the museum and explores his family rich Missouri heritage and interconnections with the Boone family. Well, as I say, my name is Father Moses Berry, and I live in the house that my great-grandparents built in 1875. My great-grandfather and my great-grandmother built that house. My grandfather was born and raised in that house. My father was born and raised in that house. I was born and raised in that house, and now I'm raising my children there. So you can see we came from a long line of Ozarkians. When we first moved back here, um, you know, the Boone Rendezvous, you know what a rendezvous is, right? When people get together and reenact a certain part of history. Well, they had the Boone Rendezvous, and we just moved from St. Louis. And so we had these things here for the first time. They were back, you know, back at the home place after about, you know, many years. And uh, so they asked me to bring some things that belonged to the Boones, Marie and Caroline. And so I brought out uh, some quilts that belonged to uh, Caroline, some that was my great-grandmother, from Mamie Berry, my grandmother, 1907, from her dowry, and two quilts from the Underground Railroad. Now, I knew the quilts from the Underground Railroad because those had been on loan, and they still are on loan sometimes, to, to museums throughout the country. And so the rest of the, 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 quil- the quilts I lined up in some sort of order. The older-looking quilts would be the first one, and then the ones that didn't look so old would be next. After all, who could dispute it? So I just sort of lined them up, and I said, this quilt was made by my grandmother, this quilt was made by my great-grandmother, this is from the Underground Railroad, and there was a little white lady in the back of the room that we later found out was 96 years old. And every time I would mention these quilts, she would say, nope, don't think so. 
So it was, it was humiliating. And finally she said, why don't you stop lying? And I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, that quilt was made by your grandmother in 1907 for a dowry. The one no. in the middle is the oldest one in your collection from 1790. This is from the Underground Railroad. I knew that one. Yeah. <laughs> this one is from the Underground Railroad. These were made by your great-grandmother and so forth. And so I asked her how she knew. And she said, because they taught me how to quilt. As it turns out, this lady's mother came across the Cumberland Gap in 1890 in a covered wagon. And my grandmother was the daughter of a slave. So they were contemporaries who lived in this little town of Ash Grove. And they were dear friends. They loved each other. And when she finished, she went, gotcha. She was just giving me the business the whole time. And it worked. <laughs> and, and since then, she died only last year. And since then, I, l I learned so much about my family. I even remembered who her mother was. Because her mother and my grandmother were the ladies from the other world. They were the ladies from the world before automobiles, before mm -hmm. electricity. They were the ladies from the other world. And no matter what I did, and I was somewhat wayward boy, they would always, <laughs> um, they always took me in. But they did think my brother Charles and I were the most uh, decadent little boys in the world. And my mother was worse. And do you know why? Because they let us watch that program that some of you will remember called Petticoat Junction. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and my grandmother used to say, those girls are naked inside that wire top. You know, it began by those <laughs> throwing their petticoats over the top. And we said, no, Grandma, that's not true. I mean, this is a movie. But she could never separate that reality from, uh, you know, from, from, from theater. This is a this is a cabinet that was given to Marie Boone from Caroline. Um, from from Nathan Boone. And Caroline gave it to my Uncle Lawrence. My Uncle Lawrence gave it to me and now it's in this museum. We have the only existing picture I'm sorry I can't this is a this is a, a picture of Marie Boone. And the only other one of her is in the Capitol Rotunda in Jefferson City, Missouri. But it's, it's color, it's a painting. And uh, so that's her. And this is Caroline and her brother George, who were the children of Nathan Boone. You know, there are always two uh, Two, two stories, at least two stories in, you know, in American history concerning, um, you know, how things were. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Look at them. They look like uh, the little, little wonderful looking little children. They don't look like little slave children, do they? That's the picture of Caroline right there on her wedding day. The one in the middle. Great-grandfather William on his wedding day. And that's also a wedding photograph. Now, I said they don't look like little slave children because, as I explained to the young people at the U, you know, history is not flat. It has dimension. And we can say there were a group of people who came here from St. Louis today. That's the flat version. But then there's all this idea of getting up in the morning and, and doing all these things and wondering how, how things will be. That's the dimension of life. And I think that sometimes we know that the master would go down to the slave quarters and have relationships with the slaves and they would have children. And oftentimes, they would fall in love because you know you can't really play around with this matter of uh, you know of sex and love and, and all these things without having some consequences. And I think th their consequences were they fell in love. After all, they gave, she gave her, he gave her property. He gave her this cabinet, which is a very rare piece. Why would a person do that? Unless, of course, there was more to it than just slave and owner. So. My, this is a picture of my great-grandfather, Wallace White. Wallace White was the first black man in the Missouri State Cavalry. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, a civil, that's, a, that's a 1908 picture. Or is that 1908 or 1917? Anyway, it says in the front. Mm -hmm. 1908 picture of, uh, of you know, the Missouri. It says sixth on there, but it's actually the fifth cavalry. And uh, that's the old soldiers' reunion. 
He was freed from a field in Kentucky by the Missouri Fifth Cavalry. Now, I will tell you that there, there, there's, you can, there, there are several ways in which a person makes another completely subservient. And just being in fetters and manacles of iron do, do not necessarily mean that you are a slave. You know, there, there's more to this idea of making a slave than uh, just, just grabbing the body. You have to grab something much deeper. You know, I, I would say the soul, and some would say at least the mind, in order to, to have a real slave. Now, he was freed from this field. These are my great-grandfather's neck irons. And they go on like this. You can, but uh, you have to hustle. <laughs> Come around over here. This goes on like this. This goes through here like this. This goes through here. I don't want this. And these, let me see your camera. These are called walking ball and chain. And, pull out your hands, this are strong. You have strength. Okay, you got it? They're not that heavy, but sometimes. Since you're going to lift them up higher, higher, okay, and, and a little bit more. There you go. Just, I'm trying to, to show you how these go on. Okay, these go around through here like this, and that's part of this neck iron. The ankle ball and chain is to totally immobilize the person. These were just to slow your mobility. And so, yeah, especially if you were to drop your arms, your head would go down like this. And if you ran, be careful now. If you ran, you would uh, you couldn't get very far. Mm -hmm. So these are these were as it says on the movie of uh, that, that little video we just saw about uh, the National Geographic. We said, talked about. I said these were mean instruments, but you know how they do when they when they film these uh, these movies. They, they you know they edit it. I what I actually said was a little bit more than that. <laughs> what I said was. What I said was yes yes. What I actually said was. These were mean instruments that held the slaves captives. But they were also a means by which their souls could soar. Because they, were, they, they had the possibility of not being citizens of this world. They could hope on things eternal. They could uh, be uh, free within themselves, which is the real freedom in, uh, that, that we have. You know, Because we can have all the freedom, as, we, as many of us well know, um, we can have all the freedom in the world and still be be bound up with our own, uh, you know, animosities, hatreds, fears, and so on. I needn't tell you that. I'm sure that the, the psychologist could say it better. These are my great grandfather's ankle irons. This is not the, the the original chain. We put this chain on here so you can see how it works. This goes around the ankle like this. And this will go for me. From my ankle to your ankle to hers, these these were like leading lead, lead uh, ankle irons rather than the ones that you know people have, to have between their legs. These were lead ankle irons, and um, how, how often do they wear the neck irons? Well, they, 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 that's what I was about to say. You know, the idea of having um, they had a system, and I refer to that system as the honor system. I'm sure there's another name, Al Robitaille, my my godson. Who's a, who's a uh, you know a historian could probably tell you the real name, but I call it the honor system 
where the slaves would put these on in the morning when they would go to the field. That's how you really get a slave, is they have to become totally subservient. You know, because if you get somebody who is just, who, who you don't own, then they're not just, even though you might have them in your possession. So they would take, they would take them off in the, in the evening, and so these were actually for transporting people. But in Kentucky, it became such a system that people were people were totally beat down by the system. Have you all ever heard this expression? Someone would say, "Screw you" or "Get screwed." You've heard that expression. <laughs> it's a Civil War term that means that someone's going to lock you up. Of course, it has degenerated into the way that we use it today. But the padlock of choice from about 1810 to around 1920s was called the screw lock. This goes to, to the ankle irons. Actually, not to this particular set, but these go to the ankle iron. And you turn it in, the lock comes open. You screw it out, and this becomes the padlock, and this becomes the key. Thus the term, screw you. And even in those old James Cagney movies, where, uh, where he refers to the jailers, he says, you dirty screws. And in some circles, which I'm sure you don't run in, <laughs> some circles, they, they even refer to jailers now as screws. So it's, it's a... A, a term that we use. Now I'm going to, here, here's a, this is, this is a, a piece of money, it's called manala, that the British used to, you know, for, in the, in the slave trade, you know, with the, uh, you know, native, um, not native, but the indigenous population of Africa to, you know, to, you know, for slaves. I guess it was worth something. Actually, I heard just yesterday, was it, that, uh, that we're, we're, we're having a new system, it's gold, silver, and bronze. <laughs> so we're, so now I have to, there's some value to bronze. You know. This is my great-grandfather's uh, tool called, it's called a boring machine. And the person would sit on here and they'd put the beam underneath there and they would release it into the beam. And then they would turn the handle and it would make a, a hole in the beam. And then they would do likewise on another piece, like on the top. And then they would take a wedge peg that was larger than that hole and pound it in there. And when it dried, it made a very sure joint. And this is from 1895. Although Sears Robots catalog says 1850. Uh, you know, this, we say 1895 because that's the last barn that he made, the barn in, in the back of our house. Have you, you all haven't been buying my house yet. In my, there's a barn behind there, that's the one that he made. So anyway, this is Wallace White's, uh, the jacket that he wore. This actually wasn't his jacket, but this is an officer's coat. And so this was maybe founded on the field of battle or came about it some way. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, we'll continue our visit to the Ozark African American Heritage Museum with Father Moses Berry. I used to hate those people. They were such buffoon characters, looking, you know, or awful looking. Little did I know that they were indicators of the safe house. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans, and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Aisha from Connecticut via India. 
and i would encourage you to listen to worldfootprints.com it's a great radio station so do tune in thank you and now more of world footprints radio with your hosts tanya and ian Fitzpatrick. and welcome back to world footprints i'm ian Fitzpatrick. let's rejoin father moses Berry on our visit to the ozarks african-american heritage museum this is called a drinking gourd you know a drinking gourd right Drinking Gourd is actually, you've heard that song, Follow the Drinking Gourd, as the constellation of the Big Dipper. And straight above there was the North Star. I just had the occasion in, in 2007 to be in Oberlin, Ohio with Toni Morrison, and we gave a program at um, the 90th stop of the Underground Railroad, which is where, you know, where the song was, you know, was widely uh, sung. And the second verse, which you may not know, is peg leg, right leg, following on, Follow the drinking gourd. There was a peg leg sea captain named Peg Leg Bob who was, um, you know, who had lost one leg in a maritime accident or something. He had one leg. And they would follow the peg leg and the right footprint along the banks of the Ohio River and they would know which way to go. These, this is a telling quilt from the Underground Railroad. This particular one is called A Drunkard's Path. And, uh, you know, they had, you know, there were encrypted codes that were in these in these quilts. It, it, was, it wasn't so esoteric as some people make it out to be, oftentimes, but there was a system that, that people would use. Uh, and and they, when they saw this particular one on draped over a banister or, on, or over a rooftop as if it were airing out, they would know that uh, they would follow the, the crooked path. You know, like a drunkard is going down the street and staggering, you know? This is, why, this, is this quilt pattern's name. And when they saw this quilt pattern, they would know to follow the, you know, follow the crooked path. There were three indicators of a safe house during the Underground Railroad period. One was lantern in the window. Number two was um, um, quilt draped over some item. Number three, you would never guess. It was a little lawn jockey. Have you seen those little lawn jockeys? I used to hate them when I was a boy. I used to hate those little things. They were such buffoon characters, looking, you know, well, awful looking. Little did I know that there were indicators of the safe house during the Underground Railroad period. And if it had a green ribbon on the arm, that meant that it was safe for the slave to approach the safe house. If it had a red ribbon on the arm, that meant stay away, the house was being watched. It even had loftier beginnings than that. Do you know that great picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware? That w that's him. That's who it was. That's the brother's name. Jackson. That was for the Battle of Trenton. Froze to death. Sure did. On the other side of that river, there were to have met them a group of soldiers called the Groomsmen Corps, who were black soldiers that George Washington had established to take care of the horses. And, and when they got closer to the point of rendezvous, they saw a lantern and they said, yay, our guys are there. And then they got closer and they realized, oh my goodness, it was young Jaco, one of the 12-year-old children of one of the groomsmen, who was, like my man said, had frozen to death, holding, holding that lantern. And on the horse. Yes. And George Washington was so moved by that act of steadfastness that he ordered a bronze statue struck in the likeness of Jocko. And until this very day, well, actually, they have it in stories now, but until just a few years ago, it sat on the lawn of Mount Vernon. So the next time you see a lawn jockey, don't be scandalized. So we're moving along. How did your great-grandfather end up in the cavalry? He was freed from a field in Kentucky by the Missouri 5th Cavalry. Who, who uh, 
who asked him if he wanted to, to go with with them. Okay. And so that's what that's how he came to do that. That's right. Uh-huh. So let's move along here. So we're 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 in we're in a little bit of a we're we're kind of moving along. We're going too fast. Yeah. Gotta go this this is my great-grandpa and my great-uncle Harrison, who was a Buffalo soldier. He fought with Teddy Roosevelt at San Juan. And this is his medal. This is a Buffalo soldier medal. What year was this? This is 1998 to what? So, when I went to the Missouri State Fair last year, there was this little... I was giving a demonstration with with the Buffalo Soldiers items. You know, we had we have we have lots of things and not much room. So you know, when this little little girl asked me, little white girl asked me the best question of the day. She said, "Mister, why do they call them Buffalo Soldiers?" And I said, "Darling, because they the Native Americans thought that their hair looked like buffalo fur, and they were strong like buffaloes, so they called them Buffalo Soldiers." And but she was only like four years old. She didn't really get it. So she said, "Okay." And then she said, "Can I feel your hair?" So she started rubbing all over my hair. Her mother is freaking out by now. And so I said, "Okay, listen, dear. Look at my hair. You see it?" She said, "Yes." I said, "Now what's the difference between your hair?" She was a little towhead girl, a little very blonde girl. I said, "What's the difference between your hair and my hair?" And she thought for a moment, and then she said, "Oh, you don't have any of that." <laughs> I was trying to show her the difference in our humanity, and she was trying to show me the sameness of our humanity. So, and I, then I became really frightened because I was wondering did I teach this little girl something, you know, beyond her years? But then she skipped away, and I thought probably not. Yeah, it's not Has everybody seen this? No, no. What is it? What is it? That's the that's the button from. Um, from a Buffalo Soldier, my great grandfather. This is this is, um, this is uh, my great grandmother's chair. This is a very nice handmade uh, uh, row of cherry cherry chair. This is one of the. This is her pattern. You won't see this anywhere else. This is Mamie's pattern, and uh, this is my great grandmother's pattern. She made it for her dowry, and uh, you know we have several quilts. As a matter of fact, these are these were functional pieces up until mm-hmm. I mean, I was a boy. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Father Barry, I heard a completely different story about the Buffalo Soldier. You do? I was in uh, Yosemite and they said that the park, before it became a park, was looked after by the army. And because there was a lot of buffalo around the area, the army was looking after both uh, the safety of the people and the buffalo that were on the property, uh-huh. so they became known as buffalo soldiers. Oh, probably a small mm-hmm. It could be a lot of rubbish. I no, and that's not necessarily rubbish, because we have things that we, we have we have a, the idea of oral history, and 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 it's not everything is not rubbish, even though it doesn't fit. But the but the general uh, story that the buffalo soldiers would. You know, even the regiments that are around today will tell you it's because of the Native Americans speak concerning their hair. Now, they're, they're, you know, no one has a coin on that word, on that phrase, Buffalo Soldier. So maybe it was used for that. But you, are you Irish? Scottish? Yeah. Missed by a mile. <laughs> you see, on the end, there's a, there's a, that, that piece is also by my great-grandmother. It's an Irish rover. It has celery 
dye is the green and the, the, the red is the mulberry dye. But this is a lady named Miss, Miss uh, Fannie Murray. Fannie Murray was 13 years old at the end of the Civil War. Associated Press picked up the story of our cemetery. I got a call from an elderly white gentleman in Ohio who said that Fannie Murray had saved his life. And I said, well, how so? He said, well, when he was 13, uh, in 1938, when he was about to go into high school, his father remarried. Now, I don't know the circumstances that surrounded that, but I do know that his, she turned out to be an evil stepmother. So much so that she refused to do his laundry. And so he said he wasn't going to go to school. He was going to drop out because he didn't want his mates to make fun of him. So when Fannie Murray, the old Fannie Murray down there, this is the young one up here, found out about it, she said, if you stay in school, I'll do your laundry. But I'll have to charge you 10 cents a month just so he could think he had a hand in things. Well, to make a long story short, he just retired from being... English professor at University of Ohio. Mm -hmm. His grand, his son teaches at Ohio State, and all of his grandchildren go to university. He says it's a direct result of the loving kindness that Fannie Mae showed toward him. Jim, so, what's that gentleman's his name? His name is Jim Porter, and he made this statue in there. If we had more time, you can come back on your own, and I'll give you the picture. So he made a little bronze statue of her in memory of this, of you know, of this kindness that right over there underneath, right over there. Jim Porter? Porter. Porter. So anyway, one more thing I will say. Fannie Murray had a daughter, and her daughter's name was Miss Olivia Murray. Miss Olivia Murray used to walk around town when I was a boy, big, tall woman. And she had a she had a dress that went all the way to the ground, and she had a basket under her arm. That's one of her bonnets. She always had a bonnet on. And a little dog named Wiggy that used to run in and out of her legs. And quite honestly, she was an embarrassment to us, because this was during the late 50s. And we're trying to, to lose that look, you know. And uh, here she was walking around town looking like Aunt Jemima. And, and I didn't like that. And I had the occasion to ask my mom about that once. And mom said, you know what she has in that basket? And I said, no. Mom said she had eggs from her chickens and canned goods from her garden. And mom went on to say that she saved many a family's life around here, including ours. I felt so ashamed. I could have known a saint. But I was too busy checking her out. And so, you know, like, like I was okay, got on the little running shoes, got the pants, uh, the little hat on. Okay, great, great. Got a little nice shirt there. Okay, I know all about you, right? I know nothing about you. But we accept or dismiss people on equally as flimsy evidence. And I could have known a saint. But I was too busy checking them out. But, as the great jazz pianist U.B. Blake used to say, youth is wasted on the young. And it was thoroughly wasted on me. <laughs> this, is, this is from my grandma's dowry. This is from 1907. It's called a Mammy Doll. And, uh, and one more thing I will talk about, just one of these books back here. We have a first edition, children's edition, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, have you heard someone call another person Uncle Tom? You know what that means? That means that they've never read the book. Because if they had read the book, they would know that Tom was far from being a seller. As a matter of fact, Simon Legree's men beat him till his bones were bare, but he never revealed the hiding place of Simon Legree's mistress. So if someone to, were to ever call you an Uncle Tom, the proper response would be, thank you very much. Yeah. Now Uncle Sambo, he was, I didn't like him, he was mean, he, you know, he always turned in the other slaves. Quimby, same way, but Uncle Tom breathed sanctity into everyone he met, as Harriet Beecher Stowe says. So this is called a mammy doll, and you've heard that word mammy. It's a West African word that means matriarch. And so, you know, you don't get to be a matriarch, like a leader of your 
you know, male figure of your female figure of your family just because you're old. In order to be a matriarch, you have to have some wisdom. And so, and, and mammy means wise older woman. So when you hear this, mammy, you can just chuckle to yourself. And uh, so when the kids come in here, I always say, close your eyes, but since you guys are not kids. <laughs> this is a topsy-turvy doll. And this is, uh, this is uh, it reminds us of the first port of entry in the New World for the slaves, which is the Caribbean Islands. And this is, uh, do you have any sewing people here? No sewers. Ooh. Yeah. This is called, this is called hand tatting. This is hand tatting. This is called butterfly tatting. It's tatted on this side and that side. So, you guys, this is the last time you'll see her for a few years. She's on her way at the end of the summer to the National Doll Museum in Washington, D.C. So, um, but anyway, in the meantime, my daughter accessorized her when she was young. We live in St. Louis, we live in South St. Louis. My daughter put some little, little She made her up a little. We'll, we'll end by saying, uh, you know, this, this museum is, is, a, is a treasure trove of, of, of early African-American items. And uh, we, we rank and we rival uh, even the Schomburg Museum for, for items that they have. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, we'll talk about a few millions who rose from the ashes of slavery to prominence Angela Silva of Lindenwood University and the National Black Tourism Network. She originally started sewing for the wife of uh, Robert E. Lee, and it's through that connection, because uh, you know Mary Todd Lincoln is a distant cousin to, to the Lees, that Elizabeth Todd is introduced to Mary Todd Lincoln. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. Hi, this is Paul McCartney on behalf of Rad. If you're drinking, you can't drive my car or any car. And remember, don't drink and drive. It's just not worth it. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Carla Huntsley with Missouri River Country, and I live in Fort Peck, Montana. And I'd like to have you all come out and see what a beautiful state we have. And the northeast corner of Montana is just a wonderful place. And listen to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Missouri is the birthplace of many celebrated figures who rose from the ashes of slavery to a place of prominence in our nation's history. Individuals like Dred Scott, Blanche Kelso Bruce, James Milton Turner, and others were instrumental in opening doors to freedom for many who followed. Here to talk about some of these remarkable individuals and bring history alive is Angela Da Silva, president of the National Black Tourism Network. Angela, welcome. Thank you. Thank Tell you. us a little about the mission of the National Black Tourism Network. Um, actually, we specialize in tours of the African diaspora, anywhere African slaves were taken around the world. And um, part of that and, and part of where 
my audience comes from, if you will, is that I'm a, prof- uh, a professor at Lindenwood University here um, in St. Louis. So that's what we specialize in. But the other part of it domestically is that we uh, do educational tourism within the country, uh, bringing to aspect, uh, to light lesser-known aspects of uh, African-American history. And primarily we specialize in slavery and underground railroad tours. Mm-hmm. Now, St. Louis itself has been a significant place in uh, the history of African Americans, whether it's been the culture or the legal history. And so much of that legal history that has shaped and uh, uh, defined uh, African American citizens uh, took place right there in St. Louis uh, with uh, with uh, Dred Scott and the Dred Scott uh, versus Sanford case. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, Dred Scott and uh, the role that St. Louis played and uh, 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 that uh, remarkable uh, uh, decision that was handed down that uh, really defined Africans as less than whole people. Well, it, you know, the, the climate or the culture of which Dred Scott was able to sue um, goes back to 1820 uh, during the uh, development of the Missouri Constitution and the Missouri Compromise, there was a climate here. The the fact that St. Louis sat here was the uh, on the Mississippi River it was a crossroads. I mean, everybody going west, going from east to west, actually went through here. And you had, as for a long time, this was the last city on the frontier. So you had a lot of different cultures, such as the Germans, such as the Scots-Irish, um, coming into the area and... But those particularly two groups, uh, especially the Germans, um, brought with them some really interesting um, thoughts on freedom and on democracy based on what had gone on in Europe and and the Scots-Irish as well. Um, And they had read, especially the Irish, they had run into, once their arrival on the East Coast, they had run into prejudice and they had run into um, a lot of the problems that, that black people were having. So as these people were moving west, they were trying to leave a little bit of that behind them. And let's say that their views on um, people owning people um, changed. And here in, uh, for example, there was, because of that, the influx, we were 50-50 as far as people were concerned. You know, we were considered a border state. And as far as people viewed slavery, it, it tilted really toward people who did not believe in it because of the influx of the culture, of the various cultures that were heading west and seeking a new life. Um, in our very Constitution, and which is, which, and I say all that to say, how Dred Scott was able, as a slave, to be able to sue in a Missouri court. And that is because two things. When we applied for um, statehood um, twice after the Enabling Act of 1819, the Missouri Constitution draft was kicked back by Congress twice. Because um, at that time, the pro-Southern people that had come here by the old National Road through Kentucky were major slave owners, and they did not want free blacks to be able to reside in the state. Now, this is one of the first times that you will see in the country that the United States Congress um, actually said, kicked the Constitution draft back because they said you could not restrict the movement of its citizens. So it's like one of the first times that we are considered or called by Congress actual citizens. So this is the premise of which our our first two attempts were denied. However, in order to get statehood, not only did they take that out, but they provided for blacks uh, to be able to sue, especially slaves, 
to be able to sue in a court of law as indigent people, and that is that the state would pay for uh, legal representation. So therefore, um, Dred and Harriet Scott were slaves that were that were able to get really high uh, high profile counsel from the very beginning, um, because the state of Missouri paid for it and it was provided by the Constitution. So the legal premise, though, going back to the Missouri Compromise of which. Uh, Dred Scott was able to sue is the Missouri Compromise of 1820. And, of course, the, one of the three main components of that is once free, always free. Hmm. You know, a, another uh, amazing uh, Missouri native that uh, that that I'm very um, fond of, really, is uh, William Wells Brown. Uh, he wrote a very, I think, a very powerful um, book, novel, about... Uh, um, uh, the relationship, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better word, between white men and and black women back in the, in, in the eighteen around eighteen fifty. Talk, tell us a little bit about him and, and share his his story because I, I think it's just it's a wonderful story. Well, William Wells Brown's um, father was also his master, and um, he had immigrated here um, to uh, to an area right outside. Uh, St. Louis, um, when Williams Wells Brown was just a baby. And at a very early age, he was apprenticed to, um, to a blacksmith who really misused him um, as, as an apprentice, and he ran away. But the interesting part about it, he was so attached to his mother, he ran back home. So his father did not send him back to that particular apprenticeship, um, but as, as, as he got a little older, about 14 or 15, he was re-apprenticed, this time to a slaver, interesting enough. And he traveled with this slaver um, all throughout the South as this man traded slaves. And it was part of Williams Wells Brown's job is to put uh, the shackles um, on other slaves and to keep them on their feet as they were moved throughout the, uh, throughout the South. And they were brought back um, here, and then slaves throughout Missouri were actually uh, you know, sent back down South. And it was his job to keep these slaves corralled and to feed them and um, to assist the slaver. And what's interesting about that, all throughout his journey, and he did this for quite a while, um, you know, fairly close to 10 years, one of the things that, uh, that I found out was interesting is that they would crisscross very close. They would trade in Kentucky, and they would be just the Ohio River across from Freedom in Ohio. Or they would be trading up and down the Mississippi, and, of course, with Illinois being on, that, on, on, on free soil on the other side. And at one time, and he talks in his autobiography how he um, had come back on a buying trip, you know, literally with, with, his, with his, you know, master. And um, there on the docks um, in St. Louis on the levee was his own mother. And he had been away from her for a, about a year at this time um, since he had been on the road. And um, they, they hugged each other, and he, you know, made plans for him to help her to escape. And they did escape uh, into Illinois. They didn't really get that far. They only got about 50 miles in when they were recaptured. And Williams Wells Brown was sent back to the slaver that, that he ran away, that, you know, he had ran away from. And his mother was definitely sold down south. But he had made up his mind that if he got the opportunity, the, his next opportunity, he would leave. And on another buying trip through Kentucky, he did cross the Ohio and ran, but he kept running till he got to Europe. And then Paris is where his freedom actually takes place. And it's, it's 
and how he found himself. And that's, of course, where he wrote Cloti and uh, the president's daughter. And, um, you know, he's credited to being the first, um, uh, the first African-American to write a novel. And he wrote several books. And then once he was, you know, celebrated as a novelist as being black in Europe is when he came back to the United States. But he had a very interesting, reading his autobiography gives you a working idea of what slavery was here in, in Missouri. And it was a lot different than it was. I mean, there was the beatings and this and that, uh, the same thing that was down south. However, the, there weren't the massive plantations. We did not have the gang labor that was in the Deep South. These, the farmers here were, were, they were small farms, and, and mm-hmm. the farmers worked side by side with the slaves in a lot of instances. But um, the, biggest, the biggest slaver in the state uh, only had 98 slaves ever. So there were a lot of small farms, and it was different. And we had a very large free black population in St. Louis from the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. So it was it was a little different here, um, very mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, Missouri and its its history, it's been so prominent in terms of some of the roles that African Americans have, have played in, in shaping history. But with, with Barack Obama uh, ascending to the presidency and the focus that has been there with uh, his inspiration from Abraham Lincoln, there's a Missourian uh, by the name of Elizabeth Keckley who has a tie to Abraham Lincoln through Mary Todd Lincoln that I think is an interesting story that uh, I think kind of shows how uh, many have blazed that trail to the White House. Uh, and, and so I'd like for you in our remaining minutes here to share that story about Elizabeth Keckley. Well, Elizabeth Keckley... Um was actually was was born a slave um, uh, in back east, I think in Virginia. And um, again, she was very traded and brought here to uh, to Missouri by by one of her owners. And she was trained um, first as a nurse, and then um, as was she was a nurse, she had a lot of time um, as she, you know downtime when she was nursing people that she started sewing, and she became. An incredible modiste, and which is which is a step up from dressmaker. I mean, this woman was doing couture fashions, you know, early on, and um, she originally started sewing for the wife of uh, Robert E. Lee, and it's through that connection, because uh, you know Mary Todd Lincoln is a distant cousin to to the Lees, that. Elizabeth Todd is introduced to Mary Todd Lincoln, and at this point, Mary Todd Lincoln was had just was arriving into, uh, or leaving rather, uh, Washington D.C. for the first inauguration. And what is so incredible about that is that um, Elizabeth Keckley did make her second inaugurational gown, but um, Mrs. B- Mrs. Uh, Lincoln was very busy um, the day that Elizabeth Keckley arrived to. Uh, for her interview as, as for a dressmaker, and within five minutes of the first uh, of, the, of the women meeting, they really liked each other. And as it turned out, um, Elizabeth Keckley moved into the White House and stayed there. Her bedroom she was not too far down the hall from Mary Todd Lincoln. She literally lived there. And one of the most incredible and heart wrenching stories I think of her four years in the White House was when Tad died, um, the youngest son of the Lincolns. Mary Todd Lincoln could not stand the thought of anybody touching her child other than Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is the one who prepared the body for burial. 
and she was often called upon um, to comfort both uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. They both held her in very high regard and very high esteem. And um, Elizabeth Keckley had only one son, and he was born, again, um, fathered by one of her masters. And for a long time, one of the first major battles um, uh, of the Civil War was down, it was here in Missouri at Wilson's Creek. And it was one of the major battles that kept Missouri in two uh, in the Union. But for a long time at Wilson Creek, the federal government would say there were never any blacks that fought there. And it wasn't until only about six years, six or seven years ago, now whether or not they knew it, whether or not this was an error of commission, omission, I'm not sure, but it was finally brought to the attention that Elizabeth Keckley's only son did fight and die at Wilson's Creek. But the interesting thing about it was he had enlisted as a white man. So he was able to pass, um, and but he did die there. And it's something that she never really was like a hole in her heart. But she wrote the most incredible book about uh, called Thirty Years of Slave, uh, Thirty Years of Slave, Four Years in the White House. It talks about her time there. And when she published her book, um, you know, she she did say some kind of unkind things because Mary Todd Lincoln became kind of unhinged um, after Abraham Lincoln was killed. Yeah. And thank you, Angela De Silva with Lindenwood University and the National Black Tourism Network. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, we are going to Kansas City to be more exact, Independence, Missouri, as we learn about significant African-American historical sites there. He also decided to try to um, educate blacks, and so he bought and established the first school for African-Americans in Independence, named after him, the Hiram Young School. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Rocks my socks. <laughs> I love it. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. I'm Courtney Moles. I am with Philco Economic Growth Council in Malta, Montana. I am a transplant from New Orleans, and Montana is a beautiful state. I listen to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tony Fitzpatrick. Independence, Missouri is home to multiple historic churches, modern sites, and other attractions that offer ties to African-American legacy. And joining us from Independence, Missouri Tourism is Janine Agin. Welcome, Janine. Well, hello. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, it's our pleasure to, uh, to have you on our show. You know, not surprisingly, early slaves were instrumental in the building of independence infrastructure, but the city was also home to free black pioneers who ultimately became leading citizens in the town like um, Hiram Young, Emily Fisher, and Sister Mary Jerome 
Shubrick, tell us a little bit about those individuals and some of the sites that are in place now that still honor them. Sure. Um, actually, Hiram Young was originally a slave himself, and then he earned his freedom, and he became a very skilled blacksmith shop uh, owner. He and his wife owned one of the most successful at the times, and actually, you need to know just a little bit about independence to understand why there were so many blacksmiths here. At the height of the blacksmith industry, there were 26 shops in independence. Um, independence was the edge of the civilized world, and from independence, this was used as a jumping off point for people following one of the three westward migration trails to either Santa Fe, California, or independence. So he made um, wagons, he made um, harnesses, he made, uh, you know, shoed animals, and he was um, very much impressed with the idea of trying to help other black who could earn their freedom as well, and so he would help buy them out of freedom, earn their freedom, and then at the time he was uh, retired, he also decided to try to um, educate blacks, and so he bought and established the first school for African Americans in independence, named after him, the Hiram Young School. Uh, unfortunately, the original school is not in existence anymore, but if you go to 501 West Dodgian in Independence, you can see the replacement school that was built in 1934. Uh, it's not currently used as a school, but it is um, still standing, and you can still see that building. Um, his grave, as well as Emily's and Sister Schubrick's, is in the Woodlawn Cemetery on Nolan Road, and they have put three beautiful new modern, um, pretty substantial markers and headstones detailing their history and their accomplishments in independence. Now, Janine, one of the things about about uh, independence is that it's part of the Kansas City uh, metro area. It's right next door, and I'm sure a lot of people, as as Tanya kind of did the lead in, know about the Jazz Museum and uh, the Negro Leagues Museum because of its uh, uh, headquarters there in Kansas City. But independence, too, has a lot of uh, significant attractions. You, you mentioned the Woodlawn Cemetery, but there are a lot of places, too, within Independence that have some significance, such as the, the Law Courthouse and uh, the 1859 Jail. Tell us about uh, about the Law Courthouse, because uh, a lot of these places were built by slaves. Right, and the slaves, uh, many of the slaves were excellent craftsmen. They had good reputations. Um, Sam Shepard was the slave that was the primary builder of the 1827 Log Courthouse that's just a block from our current square area. Um, it was built out of black walnut, and because it was so sturdy, it still exists today. How many buildings are around that were built in 1827? You know, not, not very many. And this courthouse was actually, for 40 years, the last courthouse between Independence and the Pacific Ocean. At hmm. one time, in fact, President Harry Truman, who was not present at the time, his courtroom and court office, uh, office in the historic Jackson County Courthouse on the Square was undergoing renovations, and so he held court in this little 1827 log courthouse that's just a, a small two-room courthouse with, um, you know, a couple of fireplaces in them. So Sam Shepard was one of the builders of that, and I think for his labor, the city paid him the grand, his owner, rather, the grand sum of $200 for building that structure. Um, the 1859 Jail and Marshall's home was also built by slave labor, and this is up on the square also. Um, in fact, that is still open for touring uh, at this time. And the 1859 Jail housed thousands of prisoners during a 
really bloody time in the border wars before the Civil War in Jackson County history. So you can come and see and hear stories of um, famous and not-so-famous prisoners, the most famous of which was Frank James and also the Civil War guerrilla raider uh, William Clark Quantrill. But um, after the Civil War, many of the African Americans were not really experiencing a great deal of prosperity. Some turned to crime, and so there were more than their share of African Americans in the jail. And a, a sweet nun by the late name of Sister Mary Jerome Schubert was really taken by their plight of how miserable the conditions were because many of them did not read. She would come and she would read to them. She would bring them food. She would write letters to their family. And she was such a faithful um, helper to the prisoners there that they gave her her own key, which is still on display in the jail today. You can go and see her key. And she was called the prisoner's friend when she was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery. That's what they engraved on her tombstone. Oh, I love that story. And, you know, another story that that, that I love, it's um, so much a part of your history, is um, an exhibit, I believe, that takes uh, that is set in the National Frontier Trails Museum. Uh, it talks about um, his, David Brown's relationship with his wife and uh, the I Remain Your Affectionate Wife exhibit. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's just such a beautiful love story, frankly. Well, it is. And actually, it's also quite unusual because um, people who went to the gold rush, many times the men would go and the women would stay back behind because it was, you know, rough and tumble and, and they didn't know what was at the other end and so they called these women gold rush widows and there were not very many African American men who went out to fetch their fortune in the gold rush fields but about 7% they think of the people who went west on the gold rush trail were African Americans so one of these men his name is David Brown and he decided for whatever reason to go look for his fortune there but his wife who must have been a little bit of a, a independent strong spirit did not want to go she said she had bad teeth and her mother's health was poor, and, and she just was not going to pack up and go to California. Um, at the time, there were not very many African-American women who were educated or who could write, and Rachel was both of those. She was obviously very educated. Um, there is a collection of her letters in the exhibit that is probably one of the biggest um, collections of writings by African-American women at the time, and she implores David, you know, can you send more money? When are you coming home? Uh, but she has a beautiful hand. Uh, she actually writes like a school teacher, and um, these are very few of the letters that exist. Her letters to him existed, but his letters back to her, uh, nobody knows what happened to them. Um, the sad story is, eventually, because he was there and she was here, she filed for divorce, she remarried, but they still have these letters that tell the sad story of somebody pining, you know, way back here, uh, far away from California, as, and, and he didn't ever make a fortune. Uh, obviously, he died uh, fairly poor. But um, that is an exhibit that is here, and it's got uh, a picture of her church where she went. Unfortunately, there's not a picture of her, but we have her letters, and we also have pictures of um, unnamed African-American gold miners that were there on the um, gold fields. And so you can come and kind of get a glimpse into history of the few people who are African-American descent that went west to get gold. Mm. And another museum that uh, that I'm really interested in is the uh, Truman Presidential Museum and Library because it really gives a glimpse of modern black history um, through its permanent uh, exhibit where the desegregation of the armed forces is explored. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, many people do not know that Harry Truman was really an early believer in civil rights. And I don't think he gets quite the credit for his efforts that he took. Um, he was very involved in World War I. He served as a captain in his Battery B uh, Artillery Command. And he saw what it was like for everyone to be serving um, and fighting. During World War II, there were only, at that time, black units and white units. And when people who came back from World War II that were black veterans were mm-hmm. um, you know, pulled off a bus and beaten or blinded or killed, this just absolutely infuriated Truman. And so even though it was not a popular decision with his own party or nationally, he felt so strongly that he started the Commission on Civil Rights and also 60 years ago um, signed an order, just a simple order, integrating the armed forces, which of course has um, come down today to be the fact that they're completely integrated. Uh, All races are in the American forces right now. If you go to the Truman Library, there's a fascinating little area called a decision theater where you go in and you can sit down and you can hear and watch film clips of some of the things that Truman had to consider as he had to decide what was best for the country. Would it be best for him to try to integrate? Would it alienate so much of the South that he would lose his next bid for re-election? What did he feel personally? Um, All these different factors came into play, and there's other scenarios in this exhibit, too, but the interesting thing is, as you watch what's going on, the film and the displays will ask you what you think was the most important and what Truman thought was most important. And then there's little rows of buttons on the seats in front of you. You get to vote and the audience votes and the results are displayed up on the screen. You know, so many people think that this was good or this was bad. Um, And then downstairs, there is a recreation of the West Wing of the White House, at least their version Mm -hmm. of it. And student groups or corporate groups or senior groups or any groups that want to can come and can do, participate in a simulation exercise called the White House Decision Center. And there's four different scenarios where actual artifacts and documents from the uh, Truman Library have been reproduced. People um, have to arrange for this ahead of time. They study the document, and then they come and they take part as if they were Truman's cabinet in trying to make decisions of crisis situations that happened during Truman's presidency. One of those scenarios is a day-long simulation of integrating the armed forces. So you hmm. assigned to be the commander-in-chief, somebody may be the secretary of state, somebody may be the president, and they work through these different exercises, and they come up with their own um, results, and then they go into a White House press briefing room, like the ones you see on TV, and do a press conference. And so some of the participants will be members of the press corps acting decision. But it really makes history come alive, and that very exciting time of the beginning of the civil rights movement um, is part of that White House Decision Center experience. Well, Janine, that's a, a fascinating history, and I think it's important that uh, that that connection between Truman and the later executive order that was signed by President Johnson that uh, that brought further uh, equality into our federal government. So it's nice to see that uh, historical link between the different presidencies. And we thank you so much for being with us to share the story about Independence, Missouri, and all of the wonderful things there that people can see and do in the Kansas City area. And before we go, uh, Janine, can you share the uh, uh, your tourism uh, website with our listening audience? Oh, we'd love to. People can um, see our brochures, get discount coupons, or more information by going to 
www.visitindependent.com um, 24 hours a day. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and we always look forward to spending quality travel time with you and to connecting with you in real time during the week on Facebook, Twitter, and our other social networks. So follow us there and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.